0: Come with me to a village in the south of Wales. It's sometime in, oh, let's say the mid to late 1700s. The Christmas season is upon us, meaning it's sometime between Christmas Day and Twelfth Night. We're cozy and warm in our little village home. The place smells divine because in the kitchen, someone is practicing that uniquely Welsh Christmastime tradition of making toffee. From the window, we can see children going door to door singing in return for money or a treat a wassailing tradition known as kalenning. In the distance, we may hear gunfire from the annual wren hunt. Then we hear a raucous ruckus coming up the street, a group of voices shouting and laughing and singing off-key. It grows louder as it approaches us until finally... There's a knock at the door. Well, I'm not answering that. You do it. You go to the door and open it. What to your wondering eyes should appear, but, well, actually, what the heck is that? Kind of hard to describe, actually, a horse's skull propped up on a pole, like a giant and very macabre version of a children's hobby horse toy. There are ribbons dangling from the skull, some kind of bulb bulging in the eye sockets, and a large sheet draping over the pole and covering the person or persons carrying it and doing that dance macabre. But don't worry, it's all in creepy, Christmassy good fun. Let's watch out for things that go bump in the night as we travel not only to Wales, but also to a time when Christmas was just spookier. It's the Welsh wassailing tradition of the Grey Mare, or the Marilod. I'm Brian Earle, this is Christmas Past. So what on earth could the Lode have to do with Christmas? Doesn't it seem like something better suited to Halloween? That's the spooky scary holiday, right? Halloween
1: is just the warm-up act. Halloween is the second most frightening holiday of the year. Christmas, hands down, is first.
0: That's Jeff Belanger, an author, podcaster, and self-described researcher of all things weird. He's the host of the PBS series New England Legends and the author of the new book, The Fright Before Christmas. And to start to make sense of what he means by that, first we need to clear the board. Forget what you know about Halloween and Christmas for the time being, and let's go back to the beginning. In ancient times, life was largely influenced by agriculture and the cycle of the seasons. Many various celebrations and other customs marked things like the fall harvest, the solstices, and the equinoxes. Samhain is the ancient Celtic half-holiday that marks the midpoint between the autumnal equinox and the winter solstice. It's the end of the harvest period, the trees shed their leaves, the days are getting colder and shorter, the fields are bare. It's in a transition between verdancy and dormancy, between life and death. So our ancient ancestors believed that in this period, the veil between the worlds of the living and the dead was at its thinnest. They'd leave out food offerings for the dead and perform various other rituals to protect next year's crop and avoid curses or bad luck or being dragged into the underworld. In about the 4th century, the church began observing All Hallows' Eve as the vigil the night before All Hallows' Day, which commemorates the saints, martyrs, and faithful departed. The phrase All Hallows' Eve would of course go through various mutations and eventually be pronounced as Halloween. All Hallows' Eve takes place at roughly the same time that Samhain would have, and the two inevitably intertwined. On paper, anyway, Halloween is a religious observance, even though in practice it's anything but. Now The how and the when and the why behind all of this is a topic for another day. The main point here is that our modern Halloween was basically built on top of an existing celebration and borrows from the traditions of that celebration. And the very same thing goes for Christmas. Solstice festivals like Yule and Saturnalia predate Christmas and Christianity itself by many centuries. These festivals involved feasting and drinking, It was a time when food and idle time were at their yearly peak and there was good reason to huddle together as winter approached. But they'd also include their own folklore and superstition. Yes, later a Christian celebration would be built on top of all of that, but that core celebration had very much to do with having fun while you could and getting ready for the dark days ahead.
1: We are petrified. We're so afraid because this is all about the winter solstice. The longest night of the year, the most darkness in some parts of the world, the sun doesn't even rise anymore. And we're scared if we are going to survive these northern climates, because winter is lethal. And that brings us together.
0: Imagine the days getting shorter and knowing pretty certainly that at least one person you know and care about, and realistically many more than that, and maybe even you yourself, would die before winter was over. Now that's scary. And now what Jeff says makes sense. And through the ages, those existential fears became personified in folklore as monsters and other supernatural forces. Things lurking out there in the shadows, in the forest, waiting to get you. Scary figures like Krampus and Grilla and the Yule Cat emerge. All pre-Christian, pre-Christmas, but all would go on to become consumed into Christmas over time. It's out of this tradition that we get the Marilode. The character itself is a ghostly grey mare, possibly derived from Norse myth.
1: The Marilod translates to the grey mare, and she rises from the dead during uh, Christmas time.
0: The character would become part of the Welsh wassailing tradition at Christmas time, where people would dress up as the Marilod going door to door.
1: She's depicted as a, a horse's skull, a literal horse's skull, and the mane could be ribbons, she could have bulbs. Eyes, or even light Christmas lights at this point in these modern times, and she's covered in a white sheet. And there might be one person under there, or two, but we're asking you to just ignore those human feet and legs underneath. And she's sort of part of the the wassling tradition. So she'll go door to door, led by an ostler or a handler, and this group of traditionally men uh, will go and they'll do these kind of rhyming verses with the homeowner. And the idea is to put out a, a verse that's so clever. That the homeowner allows you inside, and it's considered good luck if the mardi Lord
0: enters your home. And just in case this doesn't go without saying, alcohol would almost always be involved. Now, of course, throughout the centuries, many Christmas celebrating cultures have had their own regional traditions. Before the days of mass media and instant communication, Christmas was much less homogenized. It varied widely by country and region, and regional traditions tended to stay regional and often died out without the rest of the world ever knowing about them. The Marilode could have gone the very same way, and it almost did, until the early 19th century.
1: This is one of those really obscure legends that first made it into print in 1800 in, a, in an obscure little book, a tour through North Wales. It was a, a reverend, J. Evans, who had never heard this custom, and he wrote in the book that this is a very weird custom inside of uh, this, these Welsh communities.
0: Appearing in print gave the Load a new audience and a boost in popularity.
1: Because when a minister says, hey, this doesn't seem right, and then other ministers start to speak out about it, well, that's just putting a blessing on the thing, isn't it?
0: But whatever boost it may have gotten, the tradition was once again dying out by the 1930s and 40s.
1: And suddenly, um, you know, the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and then the internet came along, and these pictures started to show up. And in my experience, you know, anything that leads to free booze and treats and cookies, is going to spread, and it came back, and these Marilod traditions and and festivals started to pop up all over Wales.
0: Yes, possibly the internet and mass media have helped bring the Marilod into the modern day, but that's missing the bigger picture.
1: In the United States, even though those creatures have never been reported here historically, it doesn't matter. We are allowed to bring them where we want, because that's how folklore and traditions work. And we can, we can use them as we see fit, because they are here to serve us, they're here to save us. Because we need them. We don't even know why we need them, but we do. Uh, because we live in a really frightening time. And sure, I get it. You know, Christmas has been so sanitized and <laughs> over the over the generations that maybe we're yearning for something a little darker.
0: The mostly warm, fuzzy, cozy, sanitized Christmas we're all used to is a product of 19th and 20th century American influence, and it looks like the tides are turning again. Maybe in only a small way, and maybe not for everyone, but bringing back a little bit more of the dark side of Christmas can not only make it more fun and interesting, but also more meaningful.
1: Because we understand we're going to give each other gifts, we're going to drink and eat together. Because the only way we're going to survive is if we lean on each other. And there's some real beauty in that. And I, I, oddly enough, found so much more meaning in this holiday through its darkness than I did through, you know, any stories of Santa Claus.
0: Well, speaking of going door to door, you don't have to drink alcohol or dress up like a ghost horse to spread Christmas cheer. Sometimes a simple visit with a tried-and-true treat is the stuff of lasting Christmas memories, like this one from Carter in Texas.
1: I'd like to share a tradition that I do every year. Every Christmas season, my dad and I make M&M cookies and molasses cookies. We package them up and drive around town delivering our cookies to the elderly people of our church. Some people invite us in to share stories over cookies and hot cocoa. Every year, my dad and I enjoy baking cookies and sharing them with friends.
0: So how about you? Do you have any Christmas memories that are spooky, cozy, or somewhere in between? Why not share it with the rest of the Christmas Past family? All you have to do is record yourself speaking into your phone's voice memo app and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean, and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thanks so much to Jeff Belanger. The Fright Before Christmas is available now wherever books are sold. Check the show notes for a link. Thanks also to Carter in Texas. And as always, thank you for listening. You can drop me a line anytime. Again, I'm at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and now would be a great time to join our private Christmas Past Facebook group to celebrate the rest of the season with us and beyond. And hey, if you're really feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people discover the show? It's as easy as telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do leave a review, I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card as my way of saying thanks. Reach out for details. And until we meet again, may your days be merry and bright.